Good morning, Gospel Hope. And we are going to continue this morning our series titled, It's Complicated, from the life of David that's going to help us learn to grow in our relationships. If you were with us last week, we introduced the story of David where he's anointed king and learned how David developed a heart for God while tending his sheep. This week, we take a different turn here and saw in 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David encounters Goliath. This is one of the most familiar passages of scripture, and I think there's really some wonderful lessons to learn, particularly about how we should relate even to our enemies. So before we jump in this passage, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace. And I pray today that you would help us to see how we should interact with even our enemies, that we can do that in a way that honors you and really entrust our soul to you. I pray that the scripture would come alive in our hearts and that people would be encouraged and challenged and your spirit would be moving in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, the title of the message is simply this, Haters Gonna Hate. In uh, 2014, Taylor Swift uh, introduced her album, 1989. I know it's a little bit confusing. And up to that point, and still now, her most famous song comes off of that album called Shake It Off. And you've probably heard it on the radio or standing in line somewhere at the store. It, it gets played constantly. It, it, it was on the Billboard charts for nearly a year. Well, the singer-songwriter said that she wrote this song for a particular reason, and it was this. She felt like she lived her life under constant scrutiny and needed to learn how to respond when people said things that got under her skin. So why did she learn need to learn to shake it off, as the song says? Well, as the lyric from that song famously says, haters gonna hate. And I think that's actually a profound reality because all of us know that living in this fallen world, that we are going to face hostility. You can't avoid it. At some time or another, you are going to make an enemy. Or if we could put it very simply, I would say it this way. Opposition is unavoidable. Opposition is unavoidable. If you're a human being living on the planet Earth, at some time in the near future, you are going to face opposition. And we certainly are well aware of this right now. The wide varieties of opinion about coronavirus has sorely tested, pun intended, even some of the strongest of friendships. The racial tension we are facing reminds us of just how divided our nation is. And the political posturing only threatens to wind those fissures that exist between people. What is more, people still have to navigate the complicated web of family relationships and marriage relationships and work relationships and social life and family life. Jesus's words really do ring true today where he simply says this in John chapter 16. In this world, you will have trouble. And the truth is, this has always been the case for the people of God. Uh, we see this plainly in 1 Samuel chapter 17 where David encounters Goliath. Let me set it up for us. Well, Samuel has just anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And basically, after Samuel does that, things return to normal. Samuel goes back home and David goes back to tending sheep. 
After some time passed, one of Israel's political and military enemies, the Philistines, provoked them and began an attack against the people of Israel. Several of David's brothers, his three older ones to be specific, are called into military service and we are introduced there to a scene where the Philistines and the Israelites are drawn up in battle lines and then out comes Goliath. Now, well, what happens next is a very familiar Bible story. Probably everybody that is listening to me uh, has heard this story in some way, shape, or form. But though it is a very familiar Bible story, I would also argue that it is often a misunderstood Bible story. Well, here, here's what I mean by that. I don't think the primary point of the story of David and Goliath is to encourage people like you and I to go out and face our giants. Rather, I think the primary meaning and point of this story is to remind us to trust the Lord to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's really not about tactics, about overcoming obstacles in your life, but rather an encouragement to put our faith in the only one who can really conquer the biggest giants that encounter us. If I could put it very simply, we're not to primarily in this story see ourselves as David facing Goliath, but rather as the army of Israel back in the camp who was cowering, which really leads me to my point this morning. We must trust the Lord to rescue us from our enemies. We must trust the Lord to rescue us from our enemies. So first, I want to remind us of why that is so important from the story of David and Goliath. And then after I do that, just give us two reasons why it's so important to trust the Lord to rescue us from our enemies. Then I want to give us three practical implications that will help us to live that out in our life. So buckle up. We're going to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. And I want to start out by answering this question, why should we trust the Lord or reasons to trust the Lord? The first one is a bit of a Debbie Downer, and it's simply this, our enemies are strong. Uh, the scene in this passage, as I said, opens up with Israel on one side of a valley and the Philistines up on the other side of the valley getting ready for war. We'll pick it up in verse number two of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. So you get the picture there. It's, it's battle time and things are about to get messy. Then something remarkable happens. Look at verse number four of the passage. Then a champion named Goliath of Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear was the shaft like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. So out comes Goliath, who, who's not only the mightiest of warriors of the Philistines, but he's also a giant, a man of unparalleled strength. And the Bible tells us several details about Goliath in here, and they're important in their cumulative effect. One is, Goliath is almost 10 feet tall. Second, he's fully armored, 
and he's armed to the teeth. And third, he has weapons on him that if you get anywhere near him, it has the capability of utterly dismantling you. I mean, picture yourself. His spirit says has a tip that is 15 pounds. Picture yourself getting whacked in the head or jabbed in the side with a dumbbell. Uh, that's the idea that we have. This man is a destructive force. So why does the Bible take these pains to describe Goliath in this way? Why doesn't it just say he's a giant or he is a big dude or he's the Philistine champion? Why does it lay out these particular descriptors to help us to see just how big and bad Goliath is supposed to be? Well, I think the point of those descriptors is simply this. We are supposed to see that Goliath was undefeatable by typical human means. Uh, and, and this was a fact that Goliath himself was aware of. Look at verse number eight. He stood and he shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come up to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. Basically, Goliath knew that Israel didn't have any man in the camp like him. I mean, Saul stood head and shoulders above the other Israelites, we're told earlier in the Bible. And yet here, Goliath, a giant of a man, literally, is saying, come on out and fight me. And everybody, including Saul, is terrified. They agree that if they just have mano y mano conflict, nobody's going to beat Goliath. We read that in verse number 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, that's Goliath, they lost their courage and were terrified. But there's a principle here that was not only true for Saul and the army of Israel, it remains painfully true for you and I today. And it is simply this, there are some enemies that we cannot defeat. There are some things that are so powerful and so strong that we cannot in our own human strength overcome. Now, let's be honest. Over the last several millennia of human history, mankind has made some wonderful advancements in science and technology and learning of all sorts. And, and that has caused us to really take on some of our enemies and actually be able to overcome them in significant ways. Uh, I was thinking about this idea and, and thinking about diseases like cancer and AIDS. Even a generation ago, when you heard that somebody had cancer or AIDS, it was a virtual death sentence. And while many people still die from those diseases today, treatments and medication and all kinds of things have come out now that have enabled people, even with those dreaded diseases, to live long, profitable lives. Some of them even... Uh, even basically being cured from the symptoms of those diseases. It's staggering to think about the medical progress that has been made in humankind. Or think about those of you that were alive during the Cold War era, where in the 80s in particular, there was this kind of pallor of nuclear war kind of hanging over the whole culture. 
It was thought that nuclear war was almost inevitable and World War III was going to break out and everyone was going to be destroyed on the planet. And yet, through diplomacy and coalitions and measures and all kinds of political maneuvering, that threat still remains. There are still some rogue nations out there to be concerned about and terrorist groups. Those are a real and present danger. And yet, the threat of global World War III is one that has kind of moved to the back end. We've made progress in that area. And even today, you know, we are facing a global pandemic, which is a real and scary reality. And yet there doesn't seem to be a tenor of hopelessness about it. Yes, it's hard in the moment. Yes, there are difficulties going on, but I'm confident, as I'm sure many of you are, that within a year or two or whatever, there will be very good treatments available and things will return to a semblance of normal. Mankind, let's be honest, has made some wonderful progress against some significant enemies. And yet, in spite of all of these notable achievements, and they are notable, there have still been some enemies that have not been defeated. First and foremost on that list is death. Yes, our advancements in medicine and studies about health and what makes the human body work has, in some cases, prolonged life and made the quality of life better. And for this, we should be thankful. But the reality is the mortality rate is still 100%. One in one human beings die. And all of us know on a fundamental level, there's something wrong with that. Like we were made for more than that. And yet there is nothing that we can do, no matter how rich or how powerful or how much influence or how much learning you have, people still die. Death cannot be defeated. Or think about sin. Yes, in our world, though there are billions of quote unquote good people, we all still are well aware that there is simply something deeply flawed within all of us. All of these good people regularly lie and speak unkind words and covet and envy the lot of others. They become self-absorbed and hate rather than love. And if, and if that's not true of other people, you know it's true of your own heart. It's hard to deny the reality that all of us good people still have a bent and an appetite towards sin. Though we have defeated many enemies, sin is one enemy that we have yet to conquer. And another one. Think about the devil. You know, in our modern world, sometimes we deny or forget about or minimize the existence of a evil being that is the mastermind behind so much that goes on in our world. Yes, there is a great deal of beauty in this creation. But you would have to put on blinders not to see the brokenness that exists in our world today. Injustice, inequity, division is rampant. Industries like pornography, abortion, and human trafficking are thriving. Money and influence are regularly used to oppress rather than empower. Governments are corrupt. Families are broken, lust is advertised, and unholiness is celebrated. How does this all happen? How does so much 
evil get worked into the warp and woof of our society, it's because there is a criminal mastermind, as it were, behind all of that. His name is Satan, and he is real, and he is evil, and he is hell-bent, literally, on creating systems and influencing individuals to the detriment of the human race. The devil is the architect of evil, and he remains in power. Despite all of our advancements, despite all of our learning, despite all of our wisdom, there are some enemies that we simply cannot overcome. With the story of David and Goliath and living in this world that we live in today reminds us is simply this. We are not invincible. We are not invincible. The human race cannot conquer all together. We are flawed, broken, sinful people who need some help. Sadly, that great theologian, Steve from Blues Cruise, didn't quite get it right. We cannot do anything that we want to do. We need help. And that brings me to the second observation that I want to make. Not only is our enemy strong, but number two, here's the good news. Our champion is stronger. So go back to the story of David and Goliath. Uh, Goliath strolls out onto the battlefield and his proposition is single combat. You fight me one-on-one, -on -one, whoever wins takes the spoils. And understandably so, not, neither Saul nor anyone in the army of Israel is eager to take Goliath up on that offer. That is, until a young strapling named David arrives on the scene. While the army was encamped, as I said, David was back at home tending his sheep. Then one day, his father, Jesse, sends him up to the front lines with some food and, and um, gifts for his children, no doubt wanting to care for his children, but also wanting to hear news from the battlefront. So off David goes. He arrives at the battlefront, and when he does, he shows up right when the giant is calling on the people to send out a champion. When David hears Goliath's defiance of the Lord, he was outraged and volunteered to go out and fight right then, right there. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 32. Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Well, for good reason. Saul and the other Israelites were rather skeptical. Look at verse number 33. You can't go and fight the Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. In other words, David, you're no match for this guy. Don't you realize what we've just been seeing? Nobody can go out there and just fight this guy. Then David responds, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Now notice this. Your servant has killed lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David says, maybe what is the key phrase in this whole passage, revealing the source of his confidence. Everybody else is scared, not David. He's ready to go out and fight. Why is he so confident that he would have victory over Goliath? Verse number 37. 
the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Did you catch it there? The first two words of that verse are critical. The Lord. The Lord was the one who rescued David from lions and bears, and to him, the Philistine is just like them. God can rescue his people. Or to put it very plainly, the strength of David's confidence was based on the strength of David's God. David didn't come out here and say like, hey, I'm awesome. I'm the man. I'm a better warrior than anyone else. No, he's saying, I am trusting in the Lord to deliver me. You see, David, like the other Israelites, realized that there was no way he could just go out and in and of himself defeat the giant. It was not a fair fight. That's why when you get to the next verse and Saul offers David his armor and his sword and everything, David rejects that because he's like, listen, Saul, look, I, it's not fair. I can't go out there and expect this fight with the regular old tactics resting in my strength and my power and expect to defeat this giant. My only hope of survival, my only hope of victory is if the Lord gets involved. And you know what happens next. God does get involved. And David, to the utter dismay of everyone, kills the giant. Look at verse number 48. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. I love that. He runs. He doesn't wait back. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. Then to underscore the strangeness of this victory, the writer of Scripture states again, David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a story. He's basically saying, this is weird. This is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. But the victory of David over Goliath is meant not just to point us to applaud David, but it's to point us to an even greater and perhaps even more unexpected triumph that would occur several centuries later. You see, as I said earlier, the undefeatable giants of death and sin and the devil have been taunting mankind since the dawn of human history. And there was no one, not a single human being in our camp who had the guts or the power to go out and topple these adversaries. That is, until God as he usually does, decided to rescue his people in a very unusual way by having his son, his one and only son, come down to earth, be born of a woman, grow up, live a perfect life, and then, and then, in the most countercultural, unexpected victory of all time, Jesus rescued his people by laying down his life on the cross. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 14. Through his death, that's Jesus, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. In other words, Jesus defeated death by dying. Or, or to put it another way, 
Christ saved our lives by laying down his. Christ saved our life by losing his. You see, Christ is the new and better champion that not just the nation of Israel needed, but that all of us need. You see, David went out there and stood on behalf of the army of Israel. But Jesus went out and he stood on behalf of all of the people of God for all time. David risked his life. Jesus sacrificed his. David's victory was improbable. Jesus' victory was impossible. David defeated a political enemy. Jesus defeated an eternal one. David's tactics were unprecedented. Jesus' tactics were unparalleled. David's triumph lasted for a season. Jesus' triumph, praise the Lord, will last forever. Friends, our enemy is strong. And we are no match for them. Let's be honest. You or I cannot give death or sin or the devil a black eye. But here's the good news. We have a champion. And here's the even better news. When Christ is involved, there is no such thing as a fair fight. He always wins. Nobody can match him. He is more powerful than any giant that would ever rear its head against the people of God. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, when we look at that upside down victory, the way that God took death and turned it on its head, we are reminded that though God's work is often improbable, it is always unstoppable. Though God's work is often improbable. It is always unstoppable. God can do things that they blow our mind, but friends, he cannot be stopped. He is the champion that we desperately need. So what do we do in light of this? How do we respond to this truth that we really have enemies? Haters gonna hate. They are going to arise. We are going to have things that stand against us in our life. But the good news is we have a champion. How do we live in light of those glorious realities? Or to put it very simply, how do we trust in the Lord's rescue? What does it look like for the people of God to place themselves in God's hands? I want to offer us just three very brief things here as I close up. Number one is this, rest in God's love. And if you have put your hope in Jesus, I want to say this very plainly and very clearly and very forcefully. There is absolutely nothing in all creation, in hell, in heaven, there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God because of Jesus. In fact, that's almost exactly what the Bible says over in Romans chapter 8, verse number 38. It says this, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen! There is nothing, nothing that you can do or nothing that can be done to you 
that will separate you from God's love if you've trusted in Jesus. And let me take a little bit of liberty here and maybe even paraphrase this for modern day. And it, well, I would say it's something like this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor my sin nor someone else's sin nor the devil himself nor coronavirus nor injustice nor political tension, nor things on the news, nor post on social media, nor job loss, nor market downturn, nor failure in marriage, nor failure in parenting, nor failure in career, nor government official, nor bad legislation, nor uncertainty, nor the unknown, or any other thing in the whole wide world can be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because of his work on my behalf. So child of God, rest, rest. You are known, you are love, and he will not quit loving you. And as a parent of uh, children, I often have the both honor and opportunity, let's call it, to hold my children and sometimes carrying them around. You know, what's interesting when you first pick up a child well, typically what they do is, is they kind of cling to you and they hang on. But, but then if the child is sleepy and maybe you're holding them and rocking them and they got their arms around your neck, things start to happen. They start to relax. They start to rest, if you will. And soon, no longer are they holding on to you at all. It is 100% I am holding on to them. And look, here's the reality. As an earthly father, if I have my little child in my arms and they are unable to hang on to me, you better believe I'm going to keep my grip on them fast. I'm not going to drop them. I'm not going to let them go. I love them and I will hold on to them. Here, here's the reality, friends. God holds on to you even when you can't hold on to him. So rest, rest in his love. If you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're like, Lord, I, I'm having trouble hanging on, let him hang on to you. He will hold you and rest in that love, in that embrace of your father. That's what it looks like, or one way that it looks like to trust yourself to the Lord's rescue. Second thing I would offer is this, not only rest in God's love, but rely on God's help. Uh, when the rest of the Israelite army in our story here were back kind of cowering in the shadows, well, what was David doing? Well, he was full tilt charging forward. Well, why? What was the difference? Well, I, I think in that moment, David remembered the character of God. Look again at verse number 17 uh, of, of our text there, or verse 37, I'm sorry. The Lord... The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. In other words, David believed that God's past faithfulness was a down payment on his future faithfulness. In other words, David looked back on God's track record. Well, he showed up when the lion and bear showed up. I think he's going to show up when the Philistine shows up. I can trust God in the past. Well, that is a down payment. He has been faithful that he is going to show up in the future. David had hope simply because he believed that the Lord was always at work. Look at his pluck. 
I mean, I, I love this. And it's rooted in the fact that David knew who his God was. Verse number 45, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. Remember, David's just got like a pouch of stones and some rocks. Uh, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down and remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistines camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God and this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and the Lord will hand you over to us. Woo! I mean, that is some courage right there. It's as if David is saying, is that all you got? A spear? A sword? Well, that's no big deal. Man, bring your shield out here. I have God. He is on my side, and therefore, I am not afraid of you. Now, understand this. This, this does not mean, this is not the only passage in Scripture. And it certainly does not mean that we will win every battle. Nor does it mean that we should just throw caution to the wind. I don't think that's the thrust of this text. But I think it does imply this. If you are a child of God, if you've trusted in the work of Jesus on your behalf, then you should navigate your life, even when you face opposition, with a sense of holy optimism. There should be an optimism about you because you look at the past faithfulness of God and you say, if he has been faithful there, he most certainly will be faithful here. It doesn't mean we always triumph or things always go the way that we plan, but it does mean that our God is faithful and therefore we can rely on God's help when we need it and say, God has been faithful and I trust him to remain so. Third thing I want to point out, not only should we rest in God's love and rely on God's help, but finally, we should rejoice in God's power. Listen to this so carefully. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are saved. You won't go to hell. You won't face condemnation. Your sin will not get the best of you. The giants of death and sin and the devil himself has been defeated. Their heads have been removed for them and you are saved. You have been rescued. Jesus has conquered on your behalf. That is the most important reality in the universe. Through the work of Jesus, we will forever be saved. Rejoice in that. Look, I know this last season has been rough. But let's not forget that the worst enemies have been defeated. Yeah, we may have had a quarter in the game of life where the enemy seems to be on top. But don't forget that the score has already been determined. And we are on the winning team and it's not even close. Let's not hang our heads in de dejection and like we have chosen the wrong side. No, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, you win. And so rejoice in that reality. Yes, 
We should empathize with the sufferer. Yes, we should engage when our feelings are causing us to despair a little bit. Yes, we shouldn't kind of be aloof and stoic towards life. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But in light of all that, in the backdrop of all those things, let's remember to rejoice because God is powerful. The outcome has been determined and the clock will soon run out and our team wins. So let's worship our champion. Let's worship Jesus who freed us from the shackles of sin. Let's encourage one another about our champion who took the stinger out of death. And let's proclaim our champion who vanquished the devil so that the ends of the earth might be saved. In other words, let's grow in the gospel, recognizing what Jesus has done. Let's grow as a family, encouraging one another about what Jesus has done. And let's grow while on mission that as we go throughout, we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It really is the best news in the world. And that's not an overstatement. There is nothing sweeter than the death of Christ on behalf of sinners. So let that reality be in our hearts, be in our minds, be on our hands, and be on our lips as we talk about and sing the praises of the one who set us free. Look, the simple reality is this. Our enemies are strong, but Christ is stronger. Let's rest in him. Let's trust in him. Let's be a people who find our rescue in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that, Lord, when we are encountered by the inevitable bit of opposition, when we face real enemies. Lord, I pray that we would entrust ourselves into your hand and realize that we have a champion who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. that the victory comes from the Lord. He is our hope. He is our stay. He is our portion. He is our deliverer. Oh God, help us to find our rest in him. May we rejoice. May we rely on him and may we rest in the deep love that you have for us because of him. We thank you for all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.